One of my mentors in my life, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, is a person who penned some words back in 1995 that are based on a passage of scripture. And this week, as we look at the events of our country and as we pray for new leadership, I want to recognize these words that were penned at a time when there was different leaders. And it's actually going to echo back to a time period in history in 1 Timothy, where Nero, one of the most difficult leaders for Christians ever to serve underneath, was one who people were called to pray for. And so this morning, I want to remind you of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then I want you to hear the words of Chuck Swindoll. First of all, it says this, Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in authority positions, that we, as Christ followers, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God's heart is for every person to understand his loving kindness for them. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. So we pray for our leaders, whether they're Christian or not. We pray that they come to faith in Christ. We pray that their decisions honor God and allow for the free spread of the gospel. That's at the epicenter of this. Lord, would you allow the lighthouse of the gospel to offer hope to our nation and to the world? We pray that God would reach into the souls of our local, state, national, and world leaders who don't know him, that he would save them and incline their wills towards him. Our prayers, I like how he ends this, our prayers can make a difference. Do you believe that? Do you believe that things happen in our world because diligent people have committed themselves to praying to the Lord? I believe that. So I'm going to ask you to join me as we pray for our country and as we pray for this morning. Lord, we love you and my heart's overwhelmed with joy just looking around the room today with my brothers and sisters, some of which that I haven't had the privilege of worshiping with in person for a long time. I know in this room, as they walked in, summer and morning, I know some stories of, of tragic losses that have happened in our church family recently. Some are joining us online, sick from the hospital, that they've committed themselves to not forsaking the gathering of the brethren, even if it's over technology, to be able to worship you together. And as we filled this room with your praise, Lord, I want to begin by just saying thank you. Lord, thank you for knowing our needs more than what we do. I can't help but think about a year ago as we were anticipating our missions conference, us not knowing at all what 2020 was going to look like, but you did. And Lord, we know that you've proven yourself faithful even in very difficult seasons of life experience. And I pray for each one of us that have come into this place, Lord, that you would soften our hearts Lord, I pray for the mission that you've given us, that you've left a very specific mission for Christ followers to be ambassadors for the truth, to love others, to understand the truth of the gospel in our own lives and to be such models for the gospel that others stand back and it's been seasoned with salt and, and it's so attractive that others say, that's what I want to experience. That's who I want to be. That's where I can find hope. And so, Lord, today, as we see a transition of power in our country, we pray for those new leaders that are established. Lord, we pray that you would be the most important thing about them. 
Lord, we pray that they would submit to your will and your leadership in their lives. And that, Lord, like you did in my heart, you took my stoned, my heart of stone and you turned it into something that's soft and moldable in your hands. I pray that for our nation. Lord, I pray that for the leaders around the world, some, some of which that have been in opposition of you, like Nero was so many years ago when Paul challenged believers to walk in such a way that they loved and prayed for their leaders, even in the midst of great difficult seasons. Lord, teach us how to care for their hearts. Teach us how to love those who are around us that are our neighbors. And I pray this morning as we turn to your word that today would be a source of encouragement for each one of us. Lord, that we would be people that are not just hearers of your word, but that we're doers of your word. And I pray, Lord, that as you speak to our hearts today, that we would find ourselves recognizing what it means for us to represent you to a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So I'm hesitant to share this story. I've never shared this story publicly. I guess I did in the first hour. But when I was about 11 years old, um, this is kind of a cringeworthy story. But when I was about 11 years old, my best friend in the world, we went to Kings Island together. Some of you know Kings Island, uh, the Beast and the Vortex and the Eiffel Tower. I grew up in the Dayton area. So that was our version of Cedar Point. And I was so excited about this time with my friend because he and another one of his friends and I were going to be able to go with his parents. And um, what they did when we first arrived there is they gave my friend some money and uh, they said, we'll see you at six o'clock. And so we had the park to ourselves. It was pretty exciting. We're all tall enough to ride the rides. And, And it was about after the second ride that my friend conspired with the other friend to abandon me. And so I got left alone. Let me just tell you, the vortex is not fun by yourself. I'll just tell you that much. The, the beast is wonderful, but it's no fun when you're riding that right. It was literally all day and I didn't have any money. So, you know, like those fountains where people throw quarters and things. I think I dug, dug in there. You guys like, like, oh, this is so sad, right? Like, like it was that miserable of an experience. I, I think I need counseling for that experience. It was so painful. But my my friend that day did something that many of us have both experienced and we've also done before. And so what my friend did was that he abandoned me. It it seems kind of straightforward. It was painful. It was embarrassing. Um, It it stole away from something. And today what we're going to see in Job's life is that he's going to have a group of friends that, that are friends. Like these were people who actually were doing some pretty incredible things in his life. And we're going to learn from them some things about friendship. And in fact, we're going to learn that, that God is accurate. In Proverbs, when he says, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, that, that they're going to spend a week just listening to him, just sitting at his feet. They're going to get this friendship thing right And then over time, they're going to move into a state of abandonment that's going to ultimately just continue to be a sucker punch hitting Job right in the process of him trying to recover from so much loss. And I'm guessing for some of us, we feel that way in our lives. We've experienced the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we've also experienced the opposite of that, a friend that doesn't stick closer than a brother. One of the gifts that we have when we study God's word in large sections together and is that we can kind of look at different 
portions of Job. And today we're going to be all over the book of Job. We're going to look at these friends. We're going to hear their counsel. We're going to listen to their advice. Some of it is, a, is good advice. Some of it's terrible advice. But I want you to just focus with me for a second on what God said to Job's friends when he said that at the end of this story, he's angry with them. So that's a, an interesting phrase. God is angry. You want to see what makes God angry. It's not just that these men abandoned Job, but I want you to see in these words, it says this, for after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of the three accusers that we'll focus in on today, he says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Do you understand what's significant about that? is that he's angry with them for not representing God well to his friends. And so this morning, as we study this together, I, as we sung that song, I think like this, is, this has been a convicting message for me because I stand in front of you and I say, what does God's word say to us? How do we live our lives? And it's part of my job to represent to you what God has to say to you in the midst of suffering, challenges, and privileges, and opportunities. And part of this is that the conviction is that we, to our friends and to those who are around us, represent the love of Christ well. Do you remember what Satan did in the garden? is that he misrepresented God to Adam and Eve. And, and the consequences were tragic, right? That, that Job's friends are going to get to a point where they're so frustrated with their friends suffering that they're going to start pulling things out of the air and they're going to start to say, well, if I were you, I guess I, this is probably what's going on. And they, they fill in the blanks. And I just want to remind you, as we continue to study this book, that what Job does in the midst of being abandoned, when, when you kind of look at that, when, in whom do we trust, you know the line, in whom do we trust when our friends abandon us, what's great about it is our God is still trustworthy, right? That, that he's still the God of the universe, that we can trust him when everybody else leaves us alone, when they abandon us. And I find myself so encouraged about this that, that I'm not just the person who's been abandoned. And I confess this, even in this passage, when it talks about his two friends, the Hebrew word for that is actually the same word that we translate as neighbor. In fact, it's translated neighbor more often than friend. And I confess that I have been on the side at times of being the person who wasn't just the one abandoned, but I've done the abandoning. I can remember a time, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it was, it was elementary school dodgeball in the gymnasium, playground ball, full speed, threw it at this young man. Matt Malleus is his name. Matt was wearing glasses. I hit him right in the face, shattered his glasses. And, and after the fact, when my friends were giving me high fives, and I forgot he was a person, actually, until he and his family showed up at my front door at my house. And when they came to the door, they said, look what your son did to our son. Look what your boy did to our son. And my parents had to watch this pan out. And it wasn't until that moment that I remembered that he's a, he's a person. He's a person with feelings and emotions. That here I was, actually, he'd attended our church a couple of times. And I didn't even notice it. And I was so humbled, so convicted. Sometimes you're the abandoned one. But let's also be honest. Sometimes we do the abandoning. Sometimes the pain's too much. Sometimes other people's suffering, the stench of it, if we could say that. Job, remember, he smelled bad. He said he was repellent. He was so sick that it moves us to a point where we forget the power of presence. 
We forget the power of what it means to obey and follow the leadership of God. What's interesting is good friends, we see this um, in the early verses of Job's friends, they kind of get this right. Good friends understand the unique power of presence. They understand the unique power of pursuit, pursuing others. They're gonna make an appointment to spend time with Job and his suffering. And they also understand what it means to share in suffering. You know, friendship done right is a source of great strength amidst suffering. This is what Job's friends say about him, actually. They describe Job as being an incredible friend. It says this in chapter four, verse three, it says, behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. That's a great definition of a good friend. That, that you've had other people's backs. You've cared for them, Job. You've done this well. And then what we see is Job's friends actually early on do an incredible job of understanding and practicing the ministry of presence and also the ministry of pursuit. We all want to be pursued, by the way. We all want people to be a part of our lives and to like us and to appreciate us. And what Job's friends do is that they choose to engage with Job in the midst of his suffering. And it's such a gift to him. It says this, uh, it says this in Job 2.11. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him. You guys remember what that was? At this point, at the hands of Satan, he has lost his family to a tragedy. He has lost his health. He's got boils on his body. He's inside and outside. He's super sick. In fact, the description is of him taking clay pottery and scraping these, these, these wounds on his flesh. And it's, it's just nasty. It's gross. He smells bad. His wife complains of his bad breath. I mean, it's sad, right? And yet what his friends do is they, they find him, they, they join him. It says they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They traveled, they made an appointment together to come and to show him sympathy and to comfort him. What, what a gift. Uh, the ministry of presence is incredible. Some of you have done this for others. You've, you've been in rooms with family members that are suffering and you've just been in the room. You've listened. People have done that for you. In fact, Job's friends, they do this for one day and then it turns to two days and it's a day and night, three days, four days, five days, six days. They made it to seven days that they just listened. They wept. In fact, they shared in his suffering. It says this um, in chapter two, verse 12, it says, and when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads and up towards heaven. In other words, they're mourning for their friend who's suffering so much. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. We think at this point, he's outside the gates of the city because he's unclean. And so here they are exposed to the elements, joining their friends, their friend in suffering. And no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. It's a great example. You know who's good at doing this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands our suffering. The apostle Paul encouraged us to understand what it means to function as true friends. This neighboring idea that we join people and we join in their suffering. We allow our lives to rub off on theirs. We're, we're told this in Romans chapter 12 in verse 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. His friends are doing that right now. 
It says, live in harmony with one another. Skip forward to verse 17. Repay no one for evil for evil, but to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. You know, that verse 17 is so counterintuitive. You hurt me, I want to hurt you. You disappoint me, I want to disappoint you. You, you uh, abandon me, I want to abandon you. What, what God's saying here is no, no. Actually, this is the heart of a God who could stand up at the point of the crucifixion and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The God who could allow Peter to become uh, not only a companion of Christ for three years, but ultimately to be the rock that he establishes his church upon because he understands forgiveness and relationships and understanding pursuit. It says this in verse 18, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's no exceptions to that. That is the, the mandate for the Christ follower. Figure out how to be peaceful with people. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Some of us are living in a state of contention in every area of our lives right now. This statement, live peaceably with all, is a mandate. But what's sad for me as I studied this book is that they make a shift from being ambassadors of encouragement, God's people to help, to assist, and they shift into doing the message of the deceiver. They, they allow themselves to be a mouthpiece for great evil. <laughs> we'll call them lousy friends. In Job's own words, he says in chapter 16, verse 3, he calls them miserable comforters. Uh, he goes out of his way in chapter 6 to describe them like a desert that, that you, you know that there's supposed to be water there, but there's no water. There's nothing to sustain you in your drought. They, they're dried up wells that should offer encouragement, but they only offer dust. We'll call them frenemies, right? So, so Job's three frenemies show up, and I want to just remind you that lousy friends falsely assume to know why good and bad things are happening. You guys know how dangerous assuming is, right? It makes a fool out of you. It makes a fool out of me. We fill in the blanks. We assume the worst. We say things like, where there's smoke, there's fire. No, you know what? Where there's smoke, there's smoke. We, we, we fill in the blank. We assume the worst about people. And that's what Job's friends are going to do. They assume to know why good and bad things are happening. They allow horrible, bad, inconsistent theology and bad logic to contaminate their relationships and it's really what happens. There's examples of this. Uh, first friend of me, number one, is Eliphaz, the Timonite. Um, he really believes that Job is being punished for his sins. He, he says this in chapter five, beginning in verse three. He says, I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They're crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver him. Do you, you know what he just said? Job had his family crushed in a windstorm. His friend is standing up and he goes, I don't know what happens to the evil people. Their families get destroyed. Isn't that tragic? You know, I had a friend who, it's hard for me to say, but I, I had a friend who was a pastor of a large church and his adult daughter was dying of cancer. And um, he had people, he shared this with me, he had people who scheduled appointments with him. As this was happening, his daughter's gone to be with the Lord now and they're helping to raise those children that were left behind. But they scheduled appointments when his daughter was going through cancer to tell him that her suffering was his fault. That, that this was him, that he'd done this thing, you know? 
So some of you have contacts like me. You, um, you know the, the process of cleaning and taking them out. You've experienced this before. I, I one time confused the saline solution that's supposed to be, you know, something that's like your natural tears. That I confused it with the hydrogen peroxide cleaning solution that just stung my eyes, you know. And, and I just think like the, the Lord's defined what friendship is, that we come alongside and we're the source of hope. We, we share what's healing but instead, if we're honest, sometimes people, I don't even know if I can say good intention. I can just say, for some reason, they allow themselves to be voice pieces of evil. And in that process, what they do is they stick in the knife. They kick a person when they're down. My friend didn't need to hear that. And it was a lie. And to find out that somebody would accuse, and it was multiple people. And you just stand back and you say, I want nothing to do with that. You know, this, this experience, this, this frenemy who stands up and who says these things, there's a, there's a part of you watching this and you just, you just, your heart breaks, right? Because you say, like, this, this cannot represent what it means for us to be people who understand the God of the universe. In fact, what, what, it, what we see is that we, we actually see it pan out that, that these individuals were people who were choosing to approach this relationship, this experience with Job um, in a way that was completely disruptive and destructive. Job's frenemy number two, Bildai the Shuhite, does something that's incredibly false and incredibly dangerous. He so, says something that's a little bit like today's approach to karma. He says, Job's getting his just reward. You live this way, you made your bed, and you're going to sleep in it, Job. He says this in Job 8.20. He says, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. This bad theology is something that actually permeates the church. It grieves me. Uh, if I had a chalkboard, I'd write it up like this. It's both bad logic and it's also bad theology. The bad theology looks a little bit like this, and the bad logic looks a little bit like this. It's a person who stands back. All three of Job's accusers, actually, we've got another one, are going to say something similar to this. God gives calamities to the wicked. Therefore, because you are experiencing calamity, you are therefore wicked. That, that conclusion is flawed, flawed. You know what the Lord Jesus said? There was an event that happened when he was walking the earth. They called it the Tower of Shiloh, and that tower fell, and people wanted to know who sinned to cause this to happen. And Jesus's response back was to say, this wasn't a result of sin. In other words, this is just life. This stuff happens. It's terrible. We grieve that things happen, but stop trying to figure out why. You know, in the book of Job, 50 different times we see the word why. Why? You don't always get the why. And so what they're trying to do here is they're trying to, to falsely understand God's equations. And I know where it comes from. I understand. We, we know the stories of times like Sodom and Gomorrah, where there were individuals who were in sin and who were punished for their sins. We know that that's the case. But do you remember the divine story that's recorded for us in history? It gave us this peek behind the curtain where we understand Job was a righteous man, Right? Like Job didn't deserve to be punished in this way. God even said it himself. And yet his accusers are putting words into the mouth of God. And it's devastating. It's important for us to remember as we watch this pan out that that bad theology and that bad logic can lead to a devastating error. 
Job's friend's devastating error is to apply a generalization to Job's situation without really knowing what the heck they're talking about. Is that true? Like they don't know what they're talking about. But they're going to act like they do. And I, and I would say that, that I see this. I see this in the third accusers, that lousy friends attempt to fix the suffering of others without choosing to join them in it. You see the difference? I, I admit, I'm a fixer. You know, I, my girls share a problem with me. I'm like, all right, let's go. We can, we can straighten this out. Let's go. We can fix this. Some of you are married to people like that, right? We're fixers. But Job's friends, they want to be fixers. Instead of just entering into, I know, honey, this is really hard. I know, Job, this is terrible. I, I'm, I'm sorry you're going through this. The difference is palpable. Friend of me, number three, Zophar, the Namathite, says this. He says, Job, your pain is deserved. It says this in verse 14 of chapter 11. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and you will not fear. You know what he just did? He just kicked him when he's down. Hey, obviously you're sinning. You're not telling us what you're doing. He's turning up the volume. In fact, what he's doing there is he's dangerously speaking for God without accurately handling the word of God. You guys know that people can falsely handle the word of God. You know that, right? That people can twist and manipulate scripture. The Lord... Uh, challenged us to rightly handle the word of truth. And I think of that often. I'm convicted in that area because there's ways for us to wrongly handle the word of truth. It can be abused and manipulated. It can be added to and twisted. In fact, that's what we see is that, that Job's accusers, they use this really interesting method of using really religious sounding language. It sounds, it sounds like you could find this Bible verse. It's probably in second hesitations or something like that, right? Like if you look at this next section here where Zophar attacks Job, you just, you look at this language and it's, it's like you read it and it's just like, it sounds like something that would be in scripture. It, it sounds like something that you'd expect and yet it's twisted. Do you see the last verse here? I find this fascinating. It says, for he is crushed and abandoned the poor. He seized a house that he did not build. Do you know who said the phrase, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Lord Jesus was not a wealthy man. That the disciples weren't men who were known for their extravagant wealth and their provision. This theology has crept in such a way that they're misunderstanding the way God works. That, that it's not just wealthy people that God's blessed. It's not just people who have little. I know some wonderful saints of the Lord that have very little to call to their, their own name. And they're going to have mansions in heaven, right? So this misunderstanding, this twisted religious abuse is gross. It discourages me when I see it, when I even watch it, because here they're just turning up this language. All right, Job, you're not listening to us, so we're going to just say it louder. We're going to get on our soapbox. We're going to get out the megaphone. In fact, what he ends up doing, Eliphaz, the man who was called out by God, that God was angry at him, he's going to now say, oh, all right. Well, Job, if you don't tell us what's going on, I'm just start guessing. We're going to start guessing. And so in Job 22, 6 through 11, he just pulls out this list out of the air of things that Job, oh, well, obviously, Job, this is what he says. Is, it, is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges in your, on your brothers for nothing, and you strip the naked of their clothing. 
You've given no water to the weary to drink, and you've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You know who the man in power is. We've said Job was one of the most wealthy men of his day. He was known all around as being incredibly wealthy. And here he's going, yeah, you're jealous, you're selfish. Kept it all for yourself. Verse 8, the man with power possessed the land and favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. He's just kicking him, just kicking him while he's down. He's just making stuff up. I, as I read this, I'll be honest with you, in pastoral ministry, I've had times where I've interacted with people. I have one that stands out to me that I'm embarrassed by, that as a youth pastor, I, there was a young man that I was working with and he was struggling through some things. And I remember just being like, dude, you need to clean this up in your life. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I just realized what I was doing was I was taking my struggles and I was making their, him, his struggles. And it was wrong. It was evil, actually. I was assuming a lot. And the destruction in this young man's life was pretty palpable. It broke his heart. It was just wrong. And I think that for some of us, we actually do this. We use our assessment, our own standards, our questions of faith and the faithfulness of others And we allow ourselves to actually be ambassadors of darkness. This is fascinating. You you might find it interesting if you flash ahead here to Job chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Eliphaz describes something that happened to him. He, He talks about how there was a visitor that came to him at night. And this messenger shared a message. This is partially how he claims to know what Job was doing wrong. And I want you to just hear what he says. He says, now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it and thoughts from visions of the night, the deep, when deep falls, um, sleep falls upon men. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice, and the voice said this, Can mortal man be in right, in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker, even in his servants? He puts no trust in his angels. He charges with error. Guess what? That's a message of darkness. That the messenger that's visiting him at night is not from God. But instead, it's a messenger of evil. That that last phrase does not mesh with what we understand of the God of the universe who desires to seek and to save that which was lost, that desires restoration. And so what this man just did was he showed his hand and he said, I've listened to evil voices and I have been a megaphone for evil voices propelling darkness forward. Isn't that tragic? Can you imagine allowing yourself to be a tool used in the hands of the deceiver to cause trouble and discouragement. Um, Some of you can relate to this. Every once in a while, you'll see a van or vehicle that's just plastered with signs all around it, right? It's 
maybe a person's religious views or their political views. You see it kind of every square corner. You kind of wonder how they can see out, you know. Uh, there's one of those that's on my commute that I see every day. And it's uh, some of the statements that are on there. There are big verses that are written. Sometimes it's a message of hate or discouragement. It's a, a political opinion. It's, um, it's, it's just a profound, you know, it's just this declaration. I, I have a neighbor that's like this, that in his, in his yard, he's put up these big billboards and signs and, and, and some of them actually just spew hate. It's actually really sad. It breaks my heart. My one daughter won't let me walk down that block because it, it's just, it's sad. It's just hard to go by. And, and when, I, when I go through that and when I look at it and when I watch it, I, help, I can't help but think like, what, what would that look like in my life to do this, to, to stand up and to declare my opinions or my preferences in such a way that others are forced to understand it or to receive it? And then in that process, I found myself very convicted, deeply convicted by what I've experienced historically as a pastor over the past 20 years is that I've recognized that maybe it's not plastering opinions on the side of our car. Maybe it's not that we put the signs in our front yards, but the World Wide Web is pretty public <laughs> news to self, right? That, that people read what we write and what we post and what we publish. And I, I myself, I'm not great at social media, so you have to forgive me on this, that I, I don't know all the, all the right terms and things, but what I've known is that I've had over 20 years, people consistently who've come up to me and they've said, hey, hey, Pastor Sean, do, did you know that, that this teenager in your youth group, that this is, this is what they published online and this is what they're saying about this or about this opinion, this, this purpose, this statement. And, and it's kind of a hate, 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 and then a Bible verse. It's discouragement, frustration, opinion, and then it's a Bible verse. And I'll just tell you, when I hear that, it just breaks my heart because it's just as public as plastering this on the side of your car. It's more public. In fact, I had an experience, this is crazy, but one of the early missions trips that I went on to Africa, that we had a student that was on that trip and then afterwards they, they loved to go online and some of the stuff that they shared did not represent the love and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had a pastor in Africa call me, actually, or write me and say, hey, did you know that they're posting this? It's on the web, it's worldwide web, it's everywhere, it's recorded. And if it doesn't represent these things, I want you to remember this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, then it's something we have to evaluate, you guys. We have to run it through the grid of understanding, is this lifting other people up or is it representing something that is not of Christ? You remember that statement, the fruit of the spirit, it defines the very personification of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It represents what it means for us to live and love a world that desperately needs hope right now. And so even in that first passage of scripture that I read, remember the goal is to be ambassadors for light. And that's some people right now, I don't know why. I, I feel like it might be a full-time job for some people. They just spend time wrestling and posting and sharing. And I will tell you that not all of it fits this category of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And so I want to remind you this morning, before you post anything, that, that it's appropriate for you to stand back and for you to ask yourself, is this lifting the name of Christ high? Or is this tearing something apart, tearing down? Is this my opinion? Or is this God's hope? Opinion, hate, opinion, fear, opinion, Bible verse. I think that that's common. It scares me. 
And I think what happens often is what Job's friends actually tried to do is that we try to defend God. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, what's possible is that we do more harm than we do good. And I fear that some of us are doing the same. So some of, some of us also need to accept that there are some people that are in the world that we live in, in the name of Christ, that are using terms like prophecy, and they're claiming to be prophets. In other words, they're claiming to hold with them authority in every statement that they make. And I just want to remind you, when a prophet does not, when the truth does not pan out the way the prophet describes it, then it's appropriate to understand that person is a false prophet. And so for some of you, you stand up with me and you say, Sean, I wish you'd stand up more for things. I wish you'd declare things publicly. I, I, I want you to know, I want to stay within the lanes of what God's word is. I, I trust the Holy Spirit is informing me, empowering me. I love what God's doing, but it's rare that I ever do anything plus scripture because God's word is profitable, right? I'm getting fired up, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I think that it's scary that these men stood up in the name of God and falsely represented him. I never want to be that person. Do you understand? I never want to stand up and put words in the mouth of the God that I serve. I want to be a person who understands what it means to embody and live out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in that way, you know what we have the privilege of being is we get to be ambassadors for Christ. We get to be givers of hope. We get to be those who join in God's ability to declare his loving kindness. Eliphaz was listening to a messenger, and in my opinion, it was not God's messenger. He was declaring it boldly like it was, and the sadness and the results of that were tragic. The good news is, is that there's hope for us. There's, there's encouragement for those of us, especially those who have left alone and been left alone in our lives. When we're left alone, we do not have to be alone. It sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? There's a song that we love to sing. It comes out of Job 19. It was kind of shocked me when I was studying this, that you've sung these words before. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Isn't that a great phrase? So, so Job said that in the midst of the crisis that he understood God's perfect love. I love these words in 1 John 4.18. It says, perfect love casts away fear. Isn't that wonderful? Perfect love casts away fear. So here Job declares, I know my Redeemer and my Redeemer lives. It's important for us to note a few application points this morning. Friendship's more more than proximity. It's humble, deliberate pursuit. I want to remind you, we all want to be pursued. We all want people to love us. We want to be liked. We want to be cared for. And the person who understands, I've taught classes on this. I've wrestled with families in this area. I think everybody wants healthy relationships. To build healthy relationships, it requires you to humble yourself and to pursue others. Even some that don't immediately meet your criteria for a great place to spend seven days in suffering, right? That they don't meet your criteria for what you believe is friend material, but instead what it means is that you understand that friendship is more than just being there. It's humble, deliberate pursuit. I also think it's important for us to remember that we should be people who diligently pray for those who disappoint and hurt us 
and seek restoration whenever possible. Can you imagine the words of the Lord Jesus Christ for those very people who are nailing him to the cross that he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's, that's amazing grace. That's what it is. And I think for each one of us, that's what God's asking of us is to be people who pray for those who disappoint us, who hurt us, um, to seek restoration whenever possible. That's, that's when people have sinned against you. That's when you've been hurt, when you've been disappointed and discouraged. I want to ask you a few questions by way of application and invite the worship team to come forward as we prepare our hearts to close the service out. And I just want to ask you, what kind of a friend are you, especially when your friends are suffering? Are you a person that abandons? Are you a person that kicks others when they're down? Are you a person that understands what, what God's definition of friendship is? You remember that restores the weak. I also want to ask you to, to search your heart and to determine what's dangerous about speaking for God without handling accurately the word of God. It's so dangerous, isn't it? Putting words in God's mouth. And then finally, I, I want us to grow as a church family in the art of neighboring, the ability to understand that my neighbor is not someone to put up with, but instead that they have the potential of being people who can be my friend that they have the potential through loving kindness to be someone who understands the God that I serve. And so I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer as we turn our hearts to close out in a beautiful song in response and worship to the Lord. Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you for the clarity of your word that is precise. Your language is precise. That, that your anger with Job's accusers was because of the fact that they did not understand the God of the universe? Would we be people who understand you? Lord, would we be people who manifest your loving kindness? Would we be people that the fruit of the Spirit flows out of us, Lord? That we are ambassadors for hope, that we allow ourselves to be voices of truth in the midst of so much suffering that's around us. Lord, you're good. Uh, Lord, you, you know our needs more than what we do. And I just thank you that you have not abandoned us, even when it feels like all others have. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.